Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're joined by Francis Stewart, Policy Officer for the STUC, otherwise known as the Scottish Trades Union Congress. The STUC is a completely independent and autonomous trade union centre for Scotland who represent over 540,000 trade unionists, the members of 39 affiliated trade unions and 20 trade union councils. Established in 1897, from its earliest days, the Congress concerned itself with a wide range of economic and social questions, lobbying originally British members of Parliament, and from 1999, the Scottish Parliament, who it played a leading and active role in establishing. Hours and conditions of work and the battles around these issues were always a central preoccupation of the Congress, but it also concerned itself with wider struggles in international affairs, housing, education, transport, racism, sexism, and various other social and economic issues, as well as promoting and supporting other trade union councils. Unions in the labour movement have changed enormously over the years. The material conditions have changed, the types and forms of work, the workforce has expanded and diversified, who unions represent and how they represent them is an always updating aspect of union organising. In this podcast, we'll get an initial introduction to union organising, who they are, what they do, where they came from, and why they're important in the diverse campaigns and struggles which occupy us in 2021 and going forward, and also what just transition means from a union perspective. So thanks for joining us today, Francis. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be on. Um, I'm thinking I should maybe have uh, been reading what you read because it's a very good good and thorough introduction. So uh, some stuff in there that I maybe didn't know, but uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. So starting just with the very basics, uh, could you describe what is a union and why are they important? Yeah, so like I think fundamentally a union is basically a group of workers that come together independently of management to to exert an element of control and power over their employer or management. Um, and I think that's that's important because bosses and workers often have fundamentally different interests. So a boss may be particularly interested or concerned about making a profit and a worker is probably more concerned about their immediate health and safety, working environment, their terms and conditions, they're having a decent salary upon which to live. Maybe their working hours or how their work is organized and, and the tasks that they do so those those interests are often at odds with each other and our union is really about providing a means uh, for those workers to come together and have some power over their employer and is that what is known as collective bargaining or does that describe a different process yeah so collective bar- bargaining is is part of what a union would do so um so in, in a number of workplaces, there'll be what's known as a formal recognition agreement, where basically the management agree that the workers can organise and, and form a union, and they'll have formal processes upon which to negotiate on things like an annual salary increase or terms and conditions. Right. Um, and that's generally known as collective bargaining. So, um, yeah, like, I don't know, it's maybe I can say a bit more about some of the different things that unions, unions might do. I think collective bargaining is... is is one important part of that, but but there's others. So like an obvious one 
might just be advice and representation. So like if you start a job, for example, um, there's various legal uh, employment law or legal rights that you're entitled to, but which your employer might try to get around or your employer might not even know what they are. So like you could start a job and be given a salary and then you might want to ask your, your colleagues, like, is this the same salary as what you're getting? And, and, and there might be issues there. So a union can provide legal advice um, to you to try and make sure that you're getting what you should be entitled to. Um, but it can also do that, that bargaining aspect. Um, and that, yeah, I think that's important because like it's really about whether, like if you do that bargaining by your own, you've not really got much power. But if you do it with other people, then you can exert an element of control. Um, like I think ultimately you probably can't really divorce um, unions from taking action. So like you can have, you can get advice and you can get representations, you can collectively bargain, but you need to, in order to have an element of power in that bargaining process, you probably have to be prepared to take some action, industrial action. So that can be things like strike is the most obvious one, right? But it could be other elements like um, work to rule or go slows or whatever it might be. But like, yeah, that 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 action part is really important for unions to be able to exert some power over their employer. Like, I guess that there, there are other things that, that unions will do. Um, like a number of, like most unions in Scotland will have processes outside the workplace. So like all that I've been talking about is what, how you'd, how you'd organize in the workplace, right? But you also have like, you elect various people to senior positions in the union that will pass policy it will lobby government. Um, there's various things. You also potentially, you spoke in the introduction about um, trades councils. You can send delegates from your union branch to the trades councils and you can do stuff in the community. So yeah, there is, there's quite a lot of things that unions can do, but fundamentally, I think it's about taking action with, with colleagues in the workplace to exert power over an employer um, to try and get what you want. Perfect. Yeah, no, you've touched on so much there. And I think most of us will associate unions with strike action as something that we associate them with doing perhaps in the most mainstream examples. Um, but could you tell us maybe to roll back, to tell us a bit more about the history of trade unions in the UK, sort of where they came from and what they initially began doing? Sure, yeah. Um, like, I guess it's a little bit like how long's a piece of string. Um, so like you mentioned there, associating unions with strike action like beyond the UK I think historians argue about this but there's like in ancient Egypt for example there was um, tomb workers that walked off the job because they weren't getting paid and that was sort of maybe known as the first ever strike if you like <laughs> um, totally. so you're talking like thousands of years ago um, in the UK I think you probably associate mod more modern trade unionism perhaps with guilds, which were sort of groups of craftspeople that would come together well, two, three hundred years ago, um, things like cabinet makers, furniture makers, then um, quite skilled workers that would, they'd come together and like have price lists and things for, for their goods. Right. Um, and like that then extended probably into less skilled trades. So weavers, for example, were a, was a big trade um, back in the sort of 18th century. Um, and, and they, yeah, they'd come together as lots of strikes of weavers and, and going back, Calton weavers in, in the 18th and 19th century. I guess the sort of more modern form of trade unionism was really in the 19th century 
and associated with the Industrial Revolution. So as people moved to cities, started working in factories and mines and mills, um, that was where you really got a sort of mass, uh, a mass working class yeah. and, and a sort of modern form of trade unionism. And um, yeah, a lot of those workers took took strike action. Um, and that sort of was the start of, I guess, what you might call the modern modern day workers movement uh, or labour movement. And they seem to have arisen, I mean, even with the example of the two Egyptian labourers, whether or not that's true, they seem to have arisen from a kind of necessity, a necessity to be able to organise and to declare their rights about their employment. Um, so a kind of necessity then that unions have emerged in these times. Yeah, like absolutely. Like, <laughs> I guess anywhere there's work and anywhere where there's a sort of uh, a, a boss and worker relationship or an employer-employee relationship, I think you'll get a form of, of trade unionism or at least workplace solidarity. Um, and like, you can draw parallels to like a lot of the work at the sort of turn of the 19th and 20th century. A lot of it was sort of gig work um, and you can draw parallels to today where you, you have increasing amounts of gig work and a lot of those workers, like it's a hard job trying to organise them, but you know, that, is, that is what trade unions have done and need to do. Um, and it's only through doing that that they've sort of managed to have, make, make, an, yeah, make demands and then uh, have wins. So like things like uh, the weekend or like a, a traditional 35 hour week or a 50 or even a 50 hour week whatever it might be uh, that those have been won by by trade unions coming together and then they tend to do that in workplaces and sectors and then that will spill over and, and sort of be implemented across the economy as a whole or in political in the political arena so um but it needs that base in the workplace um and yeah as you say it's born out of necessity and what about the history of the STUC itself? Uh, how did they emerge? And what have they been involved in historically? Were they equally filling a necessity? Yeah, so <laughs> I actually have this big red book on my bedside table uh, about the history of the STUC, which I've not, I've not started reading yet, so I should really read it. <laughs> but my understanding is the STUC, uh, so it was formed in 1897, as you said in your introduction. Um, it wasn't actually... Like you might think it was about independence or, or sort of being Scottish. It, it wasn't as far as I'm aware. It was about the role of trades councils. So um, right. So in, in, in the STC, you, we have uh, what we call affiliates, but basically member unions. Um, so as you said, we've got 30, 39 member unions. They, they, they have um, a number of votes like through, through the democratic processes of the STC. But the trades councils also have a place in that democratic decision-making process. So right. uh, that is different to the TUC, which just has trade unions as their sort of democratic uh, right. decision-making process. So that was what the disagreement was about 1897. And that is still, I guess, that's still a difference that we have today between the STC and the TUC. But yeah, my understanding is it was, it was about the role of trades councils and the role of trade unions, perhaps more within the community rather than just at a national level uh, and within the workplace. So that was sort of, um, maybe, yeah, it, it, it probably has an influence over how the STC and the, the TUC are a bit different today. Um, I guess in terms of history, like, I, I, I won't go through a part of history of the STC. It's maybe, I guess I can just maybe mention two or three sort of 
well-known examples. Um, sure. Like, I guess a period of sort of like the glory days, if you like, would be um, what was known as Red Clydeside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was the period in sort of between just before and after the First World War, where um, was really a sort of known as a high point of quite militant trade unionism on the Clyde. So you had a number of workers taking strike action in munitions factories during the war. Uh, that spilled over into um, right strikes in the community, which were organised by trade unionists. Right. Um, and then sort of culminated in the battle for George Square um, around about 1920, where you had, uh, I think this is contested by historians, I don't think you actually had tanks in George Square, but you had tanks being being brought up from the north of England and other parts of Scotland. Wow. Um, because there was a real fear amongst the establishment that... Uh, like there was a hundred thousand workers on strike, and there was there was riots and all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, and and there, there was a fear that the the local barracks and Mary Hill, the, the the army there, would basically take the side of the strikers. So they they brought in army personnel from elsewhere. Yeah. So um, and that, like a, a lot of the campaign then was for around the re reduction in the working week as well. So um, and the STUC was involved in that strike action there. Yeah, it, it was like I, th I think there's there's always uh, tensions amongst uh, different people in the movement. I think there was perhaps a bit of a, a tension between a number of the leading people uh, involved in the strike and some of the the union leadership. Um, um, but the like the chair of the Glasgow Trades Council was one of the leading members of what was known as the Clyde Workers Committee. Um, and, and they had the Glasgow Trades Council was obviously represented in the STC. So yeah, it was involved in that. Like I, I guess moving on from that, there was then the, the UK general strike in 1926, which the STC was involved in, in organising effectively. Um, largely seen as unsuccessful, but also seen as a high point where you had like two million workers out on strike across the UK for nine days. And, and Incredible, yeah. Sort of a high point of yeah, worker solidarity. Um, and then I guess rapidly moving forward, perhaps one of the, in the latter part of the 20th century, one of the best known sort of, um, yeah, strikes was around, or was around Upper Clyde shipbuilders working. Oh, so yes. yeah. in 1970, basically the Tory government was trying to shut down the, the shipyards on the Clyde and uh, led by Jimmy Reid and Jimmy Early, the, the workers there um, staged a sit-in. Um, they had 100,000 people um, at Glasgow Green supporting their campaign and they managed to reverse the decision of the Tory government and keep, we still have some, not as much, but we still have some shipbuilding in the Clyde today. So the STC was, was really heavily involved in that and um, sort of on a daily basis meeting meeting the workers involved and meeting government ministers and so on and so forth. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think all of these examples are detailed in that book that I've not yet read. But um, yeah, that's just a couple. <laughs> Sounds like good bedside reading. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, three major examples of FTUC. Um, and I think that will be helpful for people. I certainly would get a good refresher um, from that. Um, but it reminds me, you know, that union organizing has often been referred to as being synonymous with the labor movement. Um, because I suppose it's so concerned with organising workers and doing these sit-ins and saving industries and you know representing, 
uh, exploited workers. So is it still the case today? Um, and what is the relationship now between unions and the Labour Party in 2021 compared mm. to like the 20s or even the 70s? Yeah, like, so I guess like some, when, like when I hear Labour movement, I just think like Labour means work, right? So um, people will use Labour movement as meaning the workers movement, including trade unions, but I can understand why some people see that as think just they just think of the Labour Party, right? So sure. um, I guess in terms of the formal relationship, like there's there's not a a formal relationship as such between the STC and the Labour Party. Like um, we we engage with the Labour Party in the same way we'd engage with any political party like the SNP or the Greens. Yes. But a number of trade unions um do have a formal relationship with the Labour Party. So like Unison, Unite, and um, the GMB will, um, they'll have political funds. So when you pay your, your member subs, a uh, proportion of that, if you opt into the political fund, will often go to funding the Labour Party. Uh-huh. And and then you'll through that, you'll get a vote in various Labour Party elections. But I, see. But I think most, most unions now are not, or most STC affiliates are not affiliated to the Labour Party. So like, yeah, there's there's an equal number like I don't know, PCS or EIS who who don't have a relationship um, with the Labour Party as such. Um, so I get yeah, it's it's, it's sort of mixed. Um, and that yeah, I guess the only other thing perhaps to add around that is that it was it was trade unions that set up the Labour Party rather than, rather than Labour Party trade unions. So um, and I think actually the STC was engaged in some of those discussions around the setting up of of a Labour Party because at that time, um, sort of at the turn of the 19th, 19th and 20th century, there was an understanding that there needed to be a, a workers, yeah, a workers representation in Parliament. Um, and that, yeah, that's 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 what led to the setting up of the Labour Party. Yeah, it's a crucial thing to remember, isn't it, that the Labour Party actually emerged out of trade union organising and, you know, the necessity for a workers movement, but that you know the Labour Party doesn't create trade unions and there isn't that formal relationship so that, that's definitely important to clear up but um, you mentioned how in the shipbuilding example there they were fighting against the Tory government and their, the Thatcher Tory era being around from 1979 to 1990s is kind of widely acknowledged now to have had a devastating impact on union powers and organising there was a kind of direct um, antagonism and an attempt to just disrupt it um, so I wondered if you could just go into the, some of the ways that government or that Thatcher government specifically has restricted trade unionism um, from 1979 onwards like what kind of things have they done and, uh, and how have they affected unions yeah. so like the main way in which they did it was through anti-union legislation so I think it was like maybe six different pieces of anti-union legislation during that period which effectively made it harder to strike um, right so they, they did things like they outlawed uh, what's known as secondary strikes so basically workers used to be able to take solidarity action so if, if i don't know um there's various examples of like miners going out on strike and then uh, dockyard workers were like we, we're going to go out and strike in support of them um, and that was outlawed right um they, they also made it harder through basically requiring ballots to be undertaken and then requiring postal ballots to be undertaken and making the notice period through which you had to give to the employer longer so it had to be like seven days um, right. 
Yeah, basically, which obviously makes it easier for the employer to try and work its way around the, sh the strike and makes it less impactful. Um, like, I think it's probably worth mentioning that there has been more recent anti-union legislation. So after the Thatcher government, the new Labour government didn't really, it didn't change any of those laws, so they, they remain in place. Yes. And then the Conservative and Lib Dem coalition brought in new uh, laws which are more restrictive. So it, it, they now require a, a, a ballot of like at least 50% of all members have to vote. Wow. Um, and then I think 40% of all members have to vote yes. So it's like, um, it's interesting because the irony is that if you applied those thresholds to the election of Conservative government, yeah, uh, yeah. They so um, there you go. So yeah, they, 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 they make it hard um, for unions, or they just make it harder for unions to strike. I guess that, like, so part of it, a big part of it was the anti-union legislation, but there was also a whole <laughs> economic strategy of privatisation and outsourcing and deregulation of the economy. Um, and, and I guess a sort of political attack on industries where unions were strong. So you always had the attack on on the mining industry, um, on manufacturing. So if you if you look at graphs showing like manufacturing jobs used to be one of the areas where most people worked in the UK oh, yeah. economy, and now it's uh, it's basically fallen off a cliff in the last forty years. Outsourced. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of those jobs have gone overseas, uh, and there was a bit of there was yeah basically a, a preference for financial capital um, rather than say what you might call it industrial capital of building stuff. Um, so yeah, anti-union legislation was a big part of the Thatcher agenda, but it, but it was wide in that as well. No, thanks for that. And, you know, it's it's always frustrating to hear about how government sort of just has this relationship, apparently, with private business where they're both yeah. attempting to dismantle union mm -hmm. powers. But in a nutshell, I think you kind of mentioned it when you said financial capital, but in a nutshell, what motivates government to restrict and regulate and put out anti-union legislation like why do they not seek to have a better relationship with unions for instance <laughs> uh yeah like i have i have the marx quote in my head which is something <laughs> like you know, the state being the managing committee of the bourgeoisie right and i i guess the point is that the state's a site of class struggle and when yeah when, <laughs> when bosses and and the elite class are doing well, then that's reflected in the state uh, more often than not. And um, yeah, sometimes I think the left or progressives can think of the state as just something which is which is inherently good and which curtails the power of um, contains the power of capital. And I, I I don't think it necessarily does. Or I think uh, for it to do so, it needs a lot of work and organising and effort. Um, um, <laughs> that's the sort of short answer. It was a bit of a cruel question because I think Marx wrote a whole book on pretty much this, several of them. Um, so it, can, it can't really be contained in a nutshell, but maybe a better way of phrasing it would be like, what kind of relationship would be ideal between trade unions and the government? Yeah, so like what would be ideal? Like, I guess what would be ideal would be um, a state or a political class which was made up of trade unionists and and the working class, right, or or people that had a inherent understanding of the material conditions which impact on, on workers, um, but that's probably quite a quite a long way away. Like, um, so like failing that, I think it's probably around 
a state which has has a long-term vision for the economy, um, built on conditions of equality and fairness and so on, but which then puts in place mechanisms to allow workers to be involved in that. So like in a number of um, European countries, like Scandinavian countries, or even Germany to an extent, you have sectoral collective bargaining mechanisms where basically terms and conditions in a sector are determined based on the negotiation between between workers and bosses. Um, and that's something that in the UK is very limited. Um, if you look back historically, we we had we had better examples of that, and that led to better terms and conditions and standards for workers. Um, and I think we've still got that to some extent in sure. other European countries. Um, but yeah, I guess feeling a sort of uh, socialist and, and uh, working class state, then I think it's a state which at least um, puts in place those mechanisms to help workers negotiate with bosses. And. We just recently had the news that ScotRail is being nationalised again. And from a union perspective, is this a kind of victory? Does this make it easier for representation to be had for like railway workers, railroad workers? And um, is nationalisation seen as a kind of step forward away from privatisation? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it's been a long-term demand of all the rail unions. So RMT and ASLEF and TSSA have been campaigning for nationalisation for <laughs> since they were privatised, right? So, um, yeah. So, it, yeah, I think it's a big step forward. Um, there's still there will still be issues, undoubtedly, and and workers will still need to be engaged in those um, those nationalisation processes yes. to make sure that it happens in a good way to protect workers and and travellers. Um, Definitely, because as we've talked about earlier, the state isn't necessarily going to be in favour of the working class but um, mm-hmm. but yeah it's a step forward and I think it like Abellio was a Dutch state-owned company right and yeah. um, that's basically the Scottish taxpayer putting profits out into other other governments never mind other um, private companies so um, so yeah I think it's a big step forward but but the fight will keep going. Absolutely. And I feel like this conversation um, leads into asking about, you know, what does just transition mean from a union perspective? Because I feel like that word or that campaign does sort of capture a lot of this because it describes this sort of necessity for quite a broad movement of workers uh, from one state of affairs to another. So I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about just transition from the from the perspective of unions here. Yes, like it's... A- I guess it's worth thinking about the historical context of just transition. So it was born largely out of the trade union movement in the US, uh, I think in the 1970s, and oil workers unions who who basically sought or used the concept of just transition to enlist support from community groups and environmentalists for environmental strikes and um, yeah, environmental strikes and health and safety strikes. And um, I think that's important because it has, a, yeah, it's rooted in the trade union movement and it's rooted in the trade union yes. movement in quite a militant way. Um, and it recognised that workers needed support from environmentalists and community groups. And it recognised that industry was always changing and that you needed to think about that change and, and be sort of one step ahead in trying to address it. Um, I guess since then, 
trade unions have used it in a number of ways. And I guess how I how I think of it is really about um, quite a radical transformation of, <laughs> like I guess I apply it in a Scottish context, but it could be applied wider sure. than that. But of the Scottish economy to move to a low carbon world or low carbon economy in a way which yep. protects workers, um, increases fairness and equality across the economy and and builds an industrial base. And and I think that's important because there, there are sometimes issues around when we talk about just transition within the trade union movement of like the reality at the moment is we, we don't have a just transition at all, right? So no. in some areas like transport, for example, we don't have any transition, like carbon emissions are not going down. And in other areas, we have a transition, but it's not just. Yeah. And I'm thinking, for example, offshore wind, where you, um, you've seen a massive increase of deployment, but the the jobs and the work associated with that are basically offshored to well, companies in Europe and companies in the Far East who build those, um, those turbines, those towers, those jackets. Um, and there's not any benefit being brought to working class communities in, in Scotland uh, or to trade unionists or workers. So, um, and that, that, like that can sometimes lead to, to issues in the trade union movement where people keep talking about just transition and like, where is this just transition? We don't see it. But, but that's not to say it's not a good concept. It's, it's what we should be striving for. It's just not what we have at the moment. No, it isn't. I mean, we've explored numerous instances in the podcast already of failures in just transition in a Scottish context. We had that report about the offshore oil, about how workers were having to basically pay for their own transition costs. If they wanted to go into renewable industries, they needed to go through all this training that they themselves had to pay for and there wasn't a fund available for them. And um, and also the bifab thing where offshore wind jacket turbines were instead being manufactured in Indonesia. So, I mean, what would even be the first baby steps for a just transition in Scotland? I mean, what are we looking for? Are we looking to bring back this manufacture into the Scottish workforce and a, a kind of movement towards further nationalisation? Is that uh, the idea? Yeah, like I think it's both of those things. Um, like, I guess it, it, it depends. Like, there's a whole host of things, right, across all sectors of the economy, because we're talking about transforming yeah. the way that you know, people are transported, the way goods and services are made and transported, uh, the way we you know, dis dispose of our waste. Like, it's, it's everything, right? Um, I think in terms of baby steps, or at least priorities, like... Some of this is quite basic, but like uh, retrofitting our homes to make them more energy efficient is, is probably um, the simplest and most effective or cost-effective way of reducing carbon emissions, tackling fuel poverty, and providing lots of jobs at the same time. Um, and I think at the moment, the way that's been done is largely through grants to homeowners. So... <laughs> that doesn't really like that's basically a bung to rich people um, and I think there's probably better ways to do that through like local authority or municipal companies which because um, a lot of the terms and conditions of retrofitting companies is really dodgy and terrible right. uh, a lot of exploitation of migrant labour and so on so um, I think there's better ways to do it um, 
So that, I guess, would be one example. Another would be around energy, and we, you mentioned offshore, mm-hmm. offshore wind. Like um, the SNP government has talked about a publicly owned energy company. Um, it's been quiet about that for over a year. Yeah. Um, but it had previously commissioned, I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, it was one of the big accounting firms to look at that, and it had proposed a retail company which would basically buy and sell from the market. So it, All right. it would have no practical impact on either changing fuel sources, which is clearly part of what needs to be transitioned, or in terms of workers producing the energy. So, um, so yeah, making that publicly owned energy company a more radical uh, yeah, energy generation company, I think that would probably be another step. And then there's, there's stuff, like I guess thinking about it from a working class perspective, um, there's probably a lot that could be done around public transport. You know, a lot of people uh, at the bottom end of the income spectrum don't have cars and, and yeah. bus travel in Scotland, perhaps Edinburgh accepting is crap. Um, so <laughs> things like yeah, free, public, free public transport, free bus travel and municipal companies that could be made, like we do actually have one manufacturing base in Falkirk, Alexander Dennis, which make electric buses. Um, yeah, a joined up strategy which both creates manufacturing jobs there and also helps yeah, low income workers um, benefit from that free public transport. So I guess that would just be three three possible policy areas to look at. I know, and it's um, you've mentioned three really important aspects, but it's just it's such an enormous um, scope, isn't it? Because as you said, that a just transition, it's um, we think it maybe it's just about energy and it's just moving from one energy to another, but actually that encompasses you know a change in everything else pretty much you know and how we manufacture, how we consume, how we get around, you know all that sort of stuff um and so yeah i'm glad we have the stuc and it being such a large organization because it's a large task um and i was wondering um i guess because it involves i mean this is an environmentalist movement as well as we've mentioned and i guess there is that kind of discussion across the board between unions and environmental groups and other sectors is that has that been kind of happening um about just transition in your eyes yeah i I think it has um I think it's been happening at, at, at a national level, um, I guess, between the STC and particularly Friends of the Earth, um, through the, like, they established the Just Transition Partnership in, I think, 2016, which involves, yes. it's co-chaired by STC and Friends of the Earth, but also involves a number of other unions, um, Communication Workers Union, Unite, Unison, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, yeah, it, it has a role in sort of lobbying government and coming up with policies. It also happens that, to an extent at a regional level. So I'm aware of at least at a Glasgow level, the Glasgow Trades Council have been working with local environmental groups around the Free Our City campaign for free bus travel in Glasgow, Get, get Glasgow Moving um, is another good sort of local environmental group or public transport group. So I think there are in pockets those relationships taking place and, and quite well. Um, it probably hasn't happened um, yeah, I don't. It, it's like over a number of years, there. I, I guess there would be some concern that the environmental movement has been fairly silent, as as a lot of people have on. I guess the collapse of manufacturing and the impact that has on working class oh, yeah. communities and the sort of offshoring of um, jobs and emissions to 
like other parts of the world. So like if you look at like I think Scotland met its what forty two percent emissions reduction target um on nineteen ninety yeah. levels, but if you look at um consumption emissions, it's sort of like an eight percent reduction. And that's because yeah. basically the way that we've decarbonized has been shifting jobs and work overseas. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. But I think that 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 is recognized particularly by Friends of the Earth to be uh, to be fair. And I think like the the sort of battle for BIFAB and the Five Ready for Renewal campaign did get a lot of support from the likes of Friends of the Earth and Platform and so on. Uh-huh. And and I guess it was quite a good rooted example of you know, a place where there was fourteen hundred workers and which could and should have a future in manufacturing low carbon kit. Um and it yeah, yeah. it was it was really good that it got support from those environmental groups. And I think that those are the type of campaigns that are rooted in workplaces but build community and environmental support that we should be looking to to take forward. No, you're dead on, yeah. There is reason for optimism there. Um but I wanted to ask you, Francis, how did you personally get involved with the STC and um and in these issues which we're talking about? What's your introduction to it? Uh <laughs> yeah, so I like, I guess my main route in was, um, like, I, I, I worked in the third sector for a number of years before joining the STC. I worked for Friends of the Earth, actually, and SCDO and, and Oxfam. Um, and at Oxfam, I became a, a union rep, um, a union rep. And, and I, like, even, to be honest, at, at Friends of the Earth, I was, like, I was always in a union, but um, there wasn't a recognised union. I think there is now. Um, right. But, yeah, it was sort of through... Like in every workplace, no matter how good it is, there's going to be workplace issues. So it was through those workplace issues that I then, yeah, effectively became a union rep. And I think I, um, I like I have a lot of time for um, NGO campaigning, but I'm also sceptical of, um, like, it's always within a quite a narrow window of what's politically possible. Um, it's always aimed sure, at government yeah. or aimed at politicians. It's like, what can we squeeze from them? And right, right. Yeah. I guess my interest was how do we not worry about politicians and government, but how do we build a movement which is going to have its own demands? Um, Fantastic. And I guess, yeah, that's why I thought I wanted to get involved in trade unionism. Yes, cool. Um, and what, I mean, I think we typically think about um, the union relationship as between an employee and an employer and then you've got the union that sort of mediates between um but is there any other you know is union representation relevant um between any other sort of you know people other than just the employee employers that can they can they operate anywhere else like <laughs> i think it's a really good question uh like yeah so i think it can i guess um i perhaps think of it as not less about union representation and more about union organizing or, or community organizing. Like what yeah. are the um, fundamental building blocks of capitalism for want of a better word, which the left should engage in to try and transform society. Like I think, if, yeah, this is, I guess, links to my concern about or skepticism of NGOs to an extent, but I think there are, uh-huh. there are building blocks and, like one is the employee-employer relationship, another is um, the tenant and landlord relationship, and you know the workers likes to live in rent. And um, I think those are probably two of the key areas which 
those on the left should be putting their energies. Um, but there are, I guess there are other foundations of capitalism, though, things like the home and social reproduction yes. and gender norms and those things, um, various institutions, technology, the environment or nature, like how, um, oh, yeah. how we extract value from, from nature to produce things. Like all those, I think, are really important, but there's not perhaps such an obvious relationship to um, to look at other than just making demands of government. So I, like, I think in those areas, I think, it, like this is maybe a bit more flair vague, but I, I think there's an opportunity to engage in trade unionism and bring those issues into it. So for example, um, offshore oil workers, right? Um, uh -huh. They're probably not immediately concerned about climate change, but they also work in an industry which requires them to go and work on a rig for three weeks uh, and then yeah. come back home and be at home for two or three weeks. And and that's a really that's really bad for someone's mental health and building a building a life. And I think so I, I guess I'd encourage environmentalists in those situations to to try and engage in trade unionism and bring those types of issues which are about environment or about nature, about the environment, but into the workplace yeah. and try and um, yeah, use those relationships as the sort of foundations of activism rather than perhaps just making demands of government which quite often aren't met um, yeah. and you can't really build a movement of, of people around. Yeah, I like that. And I like that um, the building blocks of capitalism, because they do share a commonality, don't they, of these, they're almost always these hierarchical relationships, which unions can target and also help to dismantle a little bit, or at least balance the scales. Because, I mean, all that, all of those relationships you mentioned, the landlord, renter, employee, employer, between, you know, us and nature, it's always like taking, siphoning something upwards. And then I hope, I guess from you could just imagine trade unionism as actually just stopping just that constant flow going upwards, getting away from people, from communities and yeah. from the land and just trying to bring it actually back so it can be reinvested or something like that, right? I, like, I think that's right. Like, there's the other benefit of those relationships is you can sort of, um, you can see how effective you're being and, um, so we in, in trade union organising, we use the term structure test. So like in a workplace, yeah. you know how many people work there and you probably know what your trade union membership is. You, you can have an aim to get 100% density, right? And then you can have an aim to take strike action. And um, yeah, you have a clear structure in which to work and which to bring people onto your side uh, and have what we call organizing conversations with people that might not, you wouldn't normally have those conversations with. Right, I guess yeah. the, not the problem, but the difference between that and I guess sort of more NGO campaigning is that, or community of interest campaigning, you can, you can have a environmental meeting and you have a hundred people there and you think that's great, but like you don't really know what you should, what your aim is or, or what structure mm -hmm. you're working within. Um, and I think, so that's the benefit of, I guess, trade union organising, um, tenant organising and community organising to an extent. You can you can have a clear target and you can have clear aims and you can get somewhere. Um, and I think that's perhaps a, a better route than, than just the sort of traditional 
um, campaigning against government when you've got five million people in the country. And it's a form of empowerment as well, right? Yeah. I mean, do you want to, do you want to, to anyone that isn't unionised, should we send a message saying, you know, go and join the relevant union, whether it's, you know, your, whether it's your rent, whether it's your workplace or whether it's anything else? Because I'm sure there's many people that have never encountered a union or are not currently organised. Um, and so is, is the message to, to go out and see what you can join? Yeah, absolutely. The message is join the union, but it's also join the union and get active, right? Because um, the union, like, we can sometimes third party a union is like, oh, I need a union to help me. But the union is just a group of workers who come together, right? So if, if you're in a workplace, join a union, but also start organising that union and do make, make of it what you want. Um, yes. Yeah, and that, like, that's, the, that's one of the ways we're going to change the world. This is where democracy actually happens, not just in the ballot box, right? Yeah. Well, Francis, I wanted to end by asking you, you know, what is the STC aim going forward? What's its overarching goal? I know it's had to deal with a lot this last year, but I just wondered, you know, what's what's uh, what's its aim going forward? It's uh, <laughs> a good question. I, and I think I know the answer because... Um, our new general secretary, Roz, she, well, she's been in post a year. She sent, she sent this round of <laughs> round staff the other day. It's, I think it's um, basically to build visibility and relevance of trade unions. Um, you no, know, like we have had, yeah, you, you spoke about Thatcher earlier. We've had decades of attacks on trade unions, and the trade union movement has been been weakened. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a small uptick in, in membership um, mm-hmm. which is really encouraging but I think the STC needs to be to be out there and um, talking about the benefits of trade unionism and and winning some political campaigns um, yeah, to make people see the benefits of that so like in, in the coming months we'll be I think developing an election campaign around a few key issues around care is a big issue um, oh, yeah. coming out of the COVID pandemic around around jobs and how we respond to the economic crisis, but green jobs is a, is a really big part of that. And then around pay, and we've seen you no know, politicians go out and clap key workers and then give them a, a pay cut. So um, those will probably be three of the key areas. But beyond that, it's, it's yeah, it's that sort of trying to encourage uh, trade unionism and, and organizing and trying to get people to to join trade unions and um, increase membership and increase working class power yeah brilliant all right well thanks so much francis for joining us today um i've certainly learned a lot from that um so yeah thanks very much for coming along thanks for having me this podcast was brought to you by young friends of the earth scotland a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.